Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Till Luca. Today's episode is sponsored by Handspring Publishing. Handspring did a superb job when they published my own Advanced Myofascial Techniques books, specializing as they do in unique titles for physical therapists, massage therapists, osteopaths, and other professionals who, as they say, use touch or movement to help clients achieve wellness. Their impressive catalog features fascia in sport and movement, edited by my guest today, Dr. Robert Schleip, and they've recently launched a series of free webinars featuring its authors called Move to Learn, with conversations, active demonstrations, and Q&A sessions. Sign up at handspringpublishing.com, check out their great books, and be sure to use the code TTP, like the Thinking Practitioner, at checkout for a special discount. Thanks, Handspring. In today's episode, I am talking with fascial researcher Dr. Robert Schleip, who took some time out from his very busy schedule to chat with me from his office in Munich, Germany. Robert, thanks for joining me on the Thinking Practitioner podcast. You've been a mentor of mine, an inspiration, a fact checker, and a friend for many years. And I just before we got on the call uh, this morning, I went and looked on the internet and your various internet biographies describe you as a human biologist and psychologist with an area of expertise in fascia. And you are the research director of the Fascia Research Group at Ulm University and the German research director at the European Rolfing Association. So people know you as a fascial uh, writer, thinker, networker. You've put some amazing people together and catalyzed some amazing events over the years. And some people also know that you you have a background as a hands-on practitioner. What did I leave out or what would you like people to know about you or uh, what, what context should we start with about who you are for this conversation? Well, first of all, uh, I've been a mutual, inspirating uh, exchange partner of you, Till Lukau. So uh, I I wouldn't say I have been your mentor. So then we have been mutual mentors. And both of us have been associated with uh, somatic bodywork for several decades. And that's how we know each other. And uh, I came from psychology originally, but then I went into what was called bodywork very early on. I was the first German rolfer in 1978, stayed with rolfing mostly for three decades, but also became a Feldenkrais practitioner. Hmm. And then after 30 years of hands-on enthusiastic practice, I turned more into laboratory science. And that, so my first contact with you was uh, probably the late 80s. I was trying to think back when it was. I couldn't remember the exact year. Mm-hmm. And it was at the Rolf Institute. And uh, my memory is that you were already questioning our existing ideas as Rolfers, especially about the role of tissue and the role of the nervous system. Uh, is that accurate? Do you, is, yeah, do you I think that it was too? the late 80s. I started uh, writing about it. Yeah. in a provocative style, mostly inside of the Rolf Institute publications and in the early 90s. Yeah. yeah. And, and my reasoning at that time, because I didn't know how to do experiments, was based on Peter Levine, who many of uh, our colleagues know as the founder of Somatic Experiencing, a body-oriented psychotherapy. Yes. And, but he used to be a Rolfing colleague of ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was invented in one of the faculty meetings. And there he told them that he did some mathematical calculations, uh, how much uh, kilograms or pounds per square centimeter, per square centimeter would be necessary for the Gelt-Sol tixotropy uh, explanation that we had taken over from Dr. Eideroff, the founder of the Roth Institute. And he came to the conclusion that it is beyond the forces that we have. So it would be like 80 kilograms or more. And that led me to ask, maybe we are doing something more. But I never got him. I I, uh, chased him for several years. Please give me the mathematics. If you tell us that you did the mathematics, that is not reliable. You need to get them. But he never managed to get them. They were in a drawer, in a box, etc. Yes. 
And then years later, I did the mathematics myself with colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> but it basically started in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, me, but I was not alone, but I was probably most prominent within the faculty to question the old uh, plasticity model of Rolfing and to say we need a, a additional models that include the nervous system. Yes. That's my memory. I, I remember you raising those questions. I remember you yeah. writing. Yeah. I, re I remember uh, probably, I was probably a student at the time that you were uh, becoming a faculty, a full faculty member there at the Royal I was Institute. assisting when I was staying at your house till. <laughs> okay, that's what it was. <laughs> but I remember, I remember Peter Melchior telling me that there was actually some pushback. Yeah. You coming yeah. and wanting to be on the faculty, you had these ideas, and people were saying, I don't know if that's the right thing. Oh, that uh, they were not open at that time. Yeah. What, I don't blame them. I can understand it. But, what do you uh, think the objections were? What do you think their hesitation was? Mm, mm. Uh, first of all, uh, if you have a model that makes you superior to other competing manual therapies, Mm. that Rolfers work stronger and therefore they work deeper and more profound. Other therapists can change the brain. Other therapists are even better in knowing how to change uh, the body schema as one of the brain's representation, for example, Feldenkrais. Mm. Uh, other therapies are better at relaxing muscle tonus, but Rolfers change collagen tissues. <laughs> I and see. So I so I could understand that if you take that uh, unique selling proposition away, <laughs> that it was not so very well enthusiastically greeted. You were questioning our identity as as being unique, but also our basic explanations for what we were doing. Yeah, but uh, now I think they are very thankful to me, and that's what I get. Yes. Because uh, another emphasis that Eiderolf had, more than anybody else, more than Andrew Taylor still, uh, was that fascia is the most important and most powerful tissue as a focus for the attention of the myofascial therapist for, for a body worker. Uh, rather than the skin or the muscles or the lymphatic flow or anything else. Mm. And, and uh, now I've been very involved in research and I've been together with Tom Findlay and others. Uh, fascia research has taken a big uh, uh, prime time development in scientific yes. research yes. and Robin is profiting from that. Yes, that's right. And to be, f I mentioned Peter Melchior, he, to be fair, at that time, he said, he's the kind of guy I want on the faculty. I want him there. I want him helping us think these things through. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, so I, I did, a, a, it was published then. I actually mm -hmm. just uh, got the publication back yesterday. I published something talking to fascia, changing the brain. Yes. In, in the late 90s. And there I included me writing to all the faculty members. At that time, there was no internet. <laughs> yes. Uh, and saying, what is your response to uh, little experiments I had done in Australia where I tried to rough people under uh, anesthesia. Anesthesia, yes. Yeah, and also to check their range of motion under anesthesia. And I discovered something that should not be possible <laughs> based on the roughing model. So I questioned my colleagues. And Peter Melchior, together with, with one other person, was the only positive response to that. Tell so, us what so you I discovered that shouldn't be possible. Yeah. What did you discover that shouldn't be possible? Uh, the first thing was the range of motion restriction in the shoulder joint. In many people, if they lie on their back mm -hmm. and you take the arm and put uh, the upper arm uh, next to the ear in a, in a straight for, uh, uh, upward elevation and you check that they are not muscularly restricting by wobbling a little bit. In, in a flexible dancer, you, you can extend, uh, elevate the arm all the way 180 degrees so that the uh, upper uh, arm is next to the ear, lying on the table. But with many more restricted people, uh, the arm is hanging there in the air. Mm. And you check whether the muscles are relaxed and you think they are relaxed. And then our model was, uh, if it's not the muscles, uh, then the fascia is stiff. And... Uh, if the muscles aren't tight, then it's the passive yeah. stiffness of the fascia. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, so I only had three patients at that time. I didn't, I, I should have been better prepared. I would have done a range of motion tests and would have had uh, a force meter that I use always the same force to pull, etc. But in mm. the three clients, in one of them, there was no restriction, at least not, not to 180 degrees. But in two of them, the arm was hanging in the air before the anesthesia mm. in a way where I would have thought it is not muscular restriction because if you wobble, there was no uh, visible restriction. Uh, but as soon as the anesthesia kicked in, the arm dropped all the way. And uh, that was not have happening with the ankle joint, for example. But it means yes. that in many people in the shoulder joint, uh, the restriction is some non-voluntary, um, not EMG related, not probably it is EMG. Uh, so, so I don't know, uh, but, but it seems to be independent of fascia also. Yeah, something that the anesthesia affects, yeah. probably, the nervous yeah. system. And, 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 uh, and nobody believes that anesthesia affects collagen fibers or the, mm -hmm. or the viscosity of the ground substance uh, within a few minutes. That would mm. be a huge surprise. Mm. Anesthesia is usually specialized to influence the nervous system and particularly the muscle tonus. That's the least thing you want that somebody, they can get conscious under anesthesia. That sometimes happens in one out of a thousand cases that they wake up and they experience what is happening, but they should never move while they are under, under surgery. So uh, all the different anesthesia drugs, they inhibit muscle tonus. And, th and that is the uh, most dramatic one. But, but nevertheless, it, it meant uh, that uh, some of the movement restrictions of the chronic movement restrictions are not only fascial properties. And I wanted to find out which and how, and how can we separate them. That's, yeah. So that was, is that what took you into your uh, doctoral work? I mean, I, I, when I visited you Last year, I asked you how old you were. I forget now. You were in your 50s when you decided to go back to graduate yeah. school yeah. and dive into research. Was that what the question was motivating you? Is that what was? It, it started the question. Before I did the experiment in, in Australia, I had a chance with some German doctors who were experimenting with ketamine, which is uh, an aesthetic drug. Uh, how my subjective Rolf experience, if I Rolf somebody's leg, uh, in normal conditions and when the person is under ketamine anesthesia. <laughs> and uh, I realized that there is something missing. You don't get a specific response that you are used to. And then I tried it with very fresh meat from the slaughterhouse in which the animal had just been living two, three That's hours before and it's okay. still warm. And I got a similar sensation. And that was for me a more stimulating question. Also, when you work with people who are half paralyzed. Uh, let, me see, let me see if I understand. So with the ketamine, you didn't get back the response yeah. that you were used to in yeah. your work. Yeah. In fresh meat from the slaughterhouse, you did get more of that? No, I also didn't get also it. Also did not, yes. Yeah. Okay. So in both cases, something is missing. Yes. And uh, of course, you do get a response similar, like if you lean on a piece of bread or anything other that's pliable and not animated. And the basic question that has been inspiring me until today is, what is the difference between a live tissue and not a live tissue? And, and that, is, that is a very uh, philosophical question. It comes back to what is life in, in, in a living body. And so if you take some of the elements of life away, for example, I mean, if you make, if you kill the animal, then the animal is dead, but the, some of the cells are still living. The muscle cells can still twitch for three, four hours. Uh, but if you wait 10 hours, then all life is gone. <laughs> and under ketamine, some life is gone. And the life that is gone is not the, uh, fibroblast, not the uh, muscle fibers, but the connection with the central nervous system. Yes. And that also you get uh, not with the whole central nervous system, but with a big part of it in people who are half paralyzed, who, who had a stroke where one side of the body is, is normal and the other one, the connection with the central somatic nervous system is cut off. And if you work with one side, you get a different tissue response than if you work with the other. I see. 
So the yeah. difference in the working the two yeah. sides and someone with a yeah. stroke or with some paralysis on one side was confirming what you were finding in those other cases. But, but you have it when you work with a client. You get to a piece of their body and you feel nobody at home. And, and you have some clients where you, where you get slightly bored because wherever you work, you think you are working on a piece of meat. And then you get the next client and wherever you touch her, you go, holy cow, somebody is in there. Yes. I'm right with you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so these <laughs> questions have been inspiring me. And, and, and why I took the sabbatical was based on that. I never expected that I would enter the field as an active uh, researcher. It started when I took a sabbatical to write the paper for Leon Chaitoff. And he, the editor of the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapy, and he, he could really push your buttons because I had vaguely told him I want to write down the results of uh, what I had done before in terms of how does connective tissue or how uh, on fascia plasticity. So what other explanations besides scale to sol could account for the palpable tissue response that we have. Yes. And, and I did that and I interviewed several scientists that was a big trick that I discovered. I'm still doing it sometimes today. And people now do it with me, that you try to interview a famous scientist and you say, I would like to meet you and interview you for 20 minutes. When do you have time? And, and, I, would like, and I would be willing to travel to your city or fly in. And, if they, and then of course they say they are too busy, too busy. And then you say, I can do it in March, I can do it in April. <laughs> And then just out of politeness, they have to give you a date or their secretary gives it to you. And then they don't cancel if they know you are traveling for several hours with the train or with the plane to visit them. I'm, taking notes. Of, I'm taking notes because... Yeah, uh, yeah. And then you do it like, like you are doing now. You, you, are, you are recording it. Ah. And, and on the train ride back, you try to summarize it and check the sources that they gave to you. And that's what I did with several of them. And I wrote it together. What can we as manual therapists, mostly we Rolfers at that time, learn from these laboratory scientists? And that had been a project of mine. And I used my sabbatical for it. But then I got into some of the new research that really electrified me. And uh, basically, I, uh, I got two papers on my desk. One was from Staubesand. He had discovered smooth muscle-like cells in the fascia cruis, uh, in the lower leg fascia, and also sympathetic nerve endings. And he came up with the theory that fascia may have its own tonicity, its alive contractile ability, independent from the somatic nervous system, driven by the autonomic, the sympathetic nervous system. But he wasn't sure about it. He, he found the cells. Uh, he found the innovation, he thought. Uh, but he didn't know if the cells are numerous enough uh, or powerful enough to have any significant effect. But then I found a paper that he was not aware of from a completely different field from biomechanics where they had found a contractile response in fresh fascia, but they couldn't account for it. And, where, and they were... Uh, uh, suspecting it could be contractile cells, but they wouldn't know, uh, but they suggested somebody should do that. And then I thought, wow, there we go. And I could, be, I could earn the Nobel Prize by spending a few months only with the support of Staubesand to take some fresh pieces of fascia, put it in organ bars and put some adrenaline and then make it contract and film it and become famous and happy. <laughs> so give it give fascia, grow it in a culture dish, give it some sympathetic stimulation through the adrenaline, and yeah. watch yeah. it contract and make it contract. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and right. the fascia wouldn't contract. <laughs> it would not, you say? No, no. And yeah. on, on one day it did, but the next day it didn't. On one day I already opened a bottle of champagne, but but if you are doing science, not to prove what you believe in, but if you are really uh, modest and careful with your results so that you double check it, then you realize on the next day it goes up and down. And it's just the temperature in the room that makes these tiny changes in the tonicity. 
that you have there and not the agent that you put in. Okay. Yeah, and then later we found out, yes, fascia can contract, but it takes a long time for any significant contractions. So within a few minutes, it's only millinewtons. It's not even sufficient power to lift your small finger one millimeter. But that takes, you, and that takes several minutes, you're saying, even to generate that much. Yeah, yeah. But if you then add up, and that's what life does with a, a frozen shoulder or with stupidine contracture, you use that cellular contractility and you give it weeks of time, then you can get such a powerful frozen shoulder adhesion that it takes more than 10 kilograms to open that up. Yep. And, 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 and years later in our laboratory, when I already was a professional scientist, and not only a part-time scientist. So for many years, I did two hours, 10 roving sessions per day in order to finance my expensive hobby in yes. the rest of the days. Uh, but already when I had given up being a body worker, uh, we found a link to the sympathetic nervous system, but not via adrenaline in, in the first case, but via TGF-beta, which is a more uh, general substance. It's not a hormone, it's a cytokine. Not a hormone, but a cytokine. Yeah. So, so it means it's not produced by a, a gland. It's produced by the fibroblasts themselves. Yeah. And they are responsive to influence from the sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. But, but it's a much slower response. So I think we rovers can influence that, but it doesn't account for the immediate palpable response that you get when you lean with your elbow on the lumbar fascia for 20 or 30 seconds at a time. All right. So your research uncovered these mechanisms. They were weaker and slower than you expected. Yeah. Yeah. You did find some ways that they are relevant to the body, you believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some interesting links to immunological function through the cytokines and the fibroblasts yeah. themselves. Yeah. yeah. So what's... What do you think explains the changes we feel? I mean, there's all this interest now in mechanisms. What do you think the mechanism is of the change we feel when we're working on people as a hands-on uh, Long-term change, the contractility can certainly account for that. So if the client over several weeks gets more flexible uh, okay. and, and the tissue gets more elastic. However, when you want to ex an explanation that you work with your fingers in different directions, and you find a direction that seems to work, and then you get a melting response. Yes. Uh, there, I think the contractility that our laboratory is focusing on is not the best explanation. Mm -hmm. and there, I think, more the work from Carla Stecco, a very highly esteemed colleague of mine at the University of Padua, about hyaluronan or hyaluronic acid is the old uh, description of that substance, expression in the ground substance is a more likely candidate. Uh, because uh, in, for example, in, in one study that I supported, they showed uh, just a few minutes of a foam roller application that is not completely comparable with rolfing. You don't have the interpersonal relationship. Even the mechanical focus is different, but in both cases, you have the compressional focus on the connective tissue. And the magnitude of the forces is pretty comparable to myofascial release and rolfing. And in that study, they showed that the shearing motion of one layer of the lumbar dorsal fascia in relationship to the next layer under it is increased after a few minutes of foam roller application. And most likely that is due to hyaluronic acid, but we, are, but we don't know for sure, but that is the best explanation. And apparently it is possible to change hyaluronan from a more uh, um, gluey condition in which is more large supermolecules, so it's more in a a viscous condition, and you can change it into a more liquid condition with the forces that we are using. So that, I think, is a more likely candidate. Hyaluron changes in molecular state. Yeah. And so is this, is this the old melting model? Is this thixotrophy? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, you could call it thixotrophy, but in a more specialized form. 
Tixotropy, uh, it would be a reversible condition. If you heat up a cold sugar or ketchup, it gets more liquid. And if you uh, stop moving, and, or if you decrease the temperature, it gets as stiff as before. That would be the conventional Galtasol model. But with hyaluronan, you change the chemical condition of one substance in a long-lasting, more sustainable manner. So I think it's, it's a better model. Well, that's one of the questions about the gel de sal model is how long does it last? Is there duration yeah. there? Is it short-term only? Uh, the tixotropy model? That, yeah. That or, is, or let's say here, hyaluronan. Let's focus uh, on Hyaluronan, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So nobody knows, but I, but I think in a few years we, we will be able to know how long this increase in shearing motion lasts. Yes. Uh, it was not able, possible to uh, study that, but now with the high resolution ultrasound that we didn't have in the 80s, we didn't have it in the 90s, it's just getting available in the last few years, and I think it's very exciting. So high resolution ultrasound, being able to see more precisely what's yeah. happening at those layers and then yeah, and to measure it, yeah. Measure it and track it prospectively yeah. over time. So we yeah. can see what's happening. And also it will probably probably the expression of hyaluronan by the newly discovered fascia sites. So this is a new type of fibroblast that Carlos mm. discovered. They they have a different form. They have different contents than regular, uh, so they don't produce much uh, collagen, but they are specialized on producing hyaluronan. And uh, most likely they respond to shear motion more than to straightforward tension or compression. And that would mean I'm not just leaning with 90 degrees downward pressure on the IT band. I would work more with uh, tractional forces in addition to the compression, mm -hmm. if that is true. Mm -hmm. But we will find, but we will probably know in two or three years. Okay. Well, we're in, me in the meantime, where a lot of us are experimenting in our work or yeah. Yeah. Uh, trying those explanations on for size. Yeah. There's lots of debates, uh, you know, about the mechanisms involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you just told me a story where you started with the miracle of life and touching life. Yes. <laughs> and the where we got to is fairly technical and tissue-based. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then in these debates that go on, you often end up being the one people target or you end up being the one who uh, defends or makes the case for tissue effects. You know what I'm saying? I'm just wondering if you see any irony in that, that your motivator is really um, the life involved and yet your work mm -hmm. and the role that you play in our field is so much around the person's uh, you are, you are there are tissue effects. To the recent debate with the neuroscientists on, on Facebook and in social media. So that's uh, a recent debate. Yeah, there's one, there's a post I made recently where I asked yeah. the question, when yeah. does the tissue matter? You gave a very precise answer, like you said, maybe in the case yeah. of Boitrin's contracture, a couple others, but it turned into something 200 and something posts with people debating back and forth. I, yeah. I think your question was great, Till, and, uh, but it was interesting that most people said it, it never matters or it always matters. Yes. And there was uh, almost no constructive debate, hap uh, discussion happening between the two groups. Yeah. And, and you had warned me about that last time we met face to face, that in the United States, uh, there is almost like a split. And, and, uh, and my impression was it may be similar to the uh, schism you have between uh, different societies and Democrats and Republicans. If you belong to one group, you don't do uh, productive conversations with the other one. <laughs> And we don't have that yet here in Europe. I don't see it in other continents, but and I started to ignore it. If these people are only using social media, scientific debates happens on different forums. But uh, that was the first time I think you managed to pull me into that. And I was amazed how, how the response was that people were uh, not 
so open to say it could be a multi-dimensional uh, uh, soft tissue pain. Yeah, people said it's only it's either only the nervous system <laughs> or tissue always matters. And and I think and and maybe there is a commonality where when I suggested to the Rolfers twenty years before maybe it is the nervous system that is included that we should be able to question our simple monocausal expl explanations and say maybe it could be different maybe it could be more complex. Yeah, we we have polarized quite a bit. In this country, yeah. I know, and then other conversations around the world, yeah. I know it's also a fairly hot, polarizing topic in Australia, say, where it's, you know, is it the nervous system or the tissue effects that are explaining what we do? And you were, I just, I mentioned, I sent you an email saying this, but you were quite masterful in your ability to shift the debate from which is it to the questions about certainty. But how yeah. can we be certain and is the certainty itself maybe part of what's polarizing yeah what you know what you actually invited a uh, a point of view that says well could be maybe maybe not mm. but what if we actually uh Explore say it. we don't know yeah and and many uh things in life are multi-causal you start with one thing it triggers the next thing and the next thing which is a consequence of the first one becomes itself <laughs> something that stabilizes the whole system. <laughs> and then often it doesn't matter how it started. And that's often the case. And so I think we should be open to look at different factors. For example, uh, the people in the neuroscientist group, they uh, also strongly believe, like me, that nociception and proprioception are in a mutually inhibiting relationship very often. So if, if the brain is in a protection mode, it, it, it drives uh, proprioceptive acuity down and vice versa also. Now, if, as Helen Lajewe and other colleagues have shown, chronic low back pain goes along with a gluing together with an increased adhesion between different layers of the lumbar dorsal fascia, whether that's causative or effect is another question. But if it is there, uh, then it is quite likely, but we have to show that, that that is itself a factor that uh, inhibits proprioception because most of the proprioceptive nerve endings are in layers where you have relative shearing motion. That has been shown. So if then your lumbar dorsal fascia glues together, uh, the Golgi receptors, also the muscle spindles, all of them are located in fascial tissue. But if the perimesium or the layers between two fascia, where some of the Golgis are lying, uh, is stuck together, you won't have any movement there, no matter how much your brain is interested in picking it up. And then you could have a multi-causal relationship. Your brain is in a protection mode that drives down your daily movement. Due to the lack of daily movement, your fascia glues together. And due to the gluing of the fascia, your proprioception goes down. Then maybe because of a new girlfriend or of a new uh, sports you have, you are out of protection mode in your brain, but still your, your proprioception is inhibited. And then you will still be not able to uh, replace the previous uh, pain perception with a useful functional proprioception from your lower back. So I think we should work hand in hand the people who work with the brain and the people who ask, how is the local tissue behaving and feeding into that? Let's pause to hear from our halftime sponsor, Books of Discovery. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksofdiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. Thanks, Drew Beal, and to Books of Discovery for their support for our podcast, and be sure to check out their great offer. 
Yeah. And, well, and right now we are developing instruments. So that's our focus this year. Uh, we need better instruments. The ultrasound we are improving. I developed together with colleague an indentometer that you don't need to rely on the palpatory uh, perception of your fingers. Of course you want them, but you cannot quantify it. And if you don't see the client for the next three weeks and his tissue gets 15% softer, uh, will you be able to detect that when you palpate his upper trapezius? Probably not because you have seen 100 clients in the meantime. <laughs> but if you have an instrument to measure the stiffness and he is 12% softer or stiffer, you can say, wow, we are in the right direction. Whatever you have been doing, let's continue it. So a meter that measures tissue stiffness used yeah. as a clinical tool to yeah. help you track the results of your work and to show the client a change over time. Yeah, yeah. But that's only for vertical pressure, similar, similar like if you press with your thumb in the, into the tissue and say your um, trapezius on the upper right is stiffer than on the upper left neck on the same place. Mm -hmm. Perpendicular and, pressure stiffness. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So that is more easy. We, we have an instrument already, uh, but now we are looking for shearing motion. So if, if you push the skin with uh, 100 grams, how, how far does it move before it stops? Yes. So that's, and that's, that you say the promise there is ultrasound, being able to visualize that and see that, at least in a research context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we also have mechanical tools where you can do that. Yeah, and, and a big uh, interest now is also not in passive manual therapies where the client lies on the table, and, and lie still and the uh, rofer leans on his tissue. But when you get the patient, and I think that's in many cases more valuable, to move in a fascia-friendly manner during the week before, before they come back. So and you give them yoga. Fascia-friendly manner. Yeah. And What's then a fascia-friendly manner, Robert? Uh, for example, to move your hip joint in more than 90 degrees during an average day. In a normal couch potato, uh, when you stand and walk, you have zero degrees in the hip joint. And then when you sit on the couch in the car, you have 90 degrees and that's all. <laughs> and you never go into external. So if you, if you advise them to sit on the floor once a while, to swing their legs, to kick somebody's ass, <laughs> to go into different meditation poses, uh, then I think that is more fascia-friendly. Because we know from animal experiments that lack of movement can change the architecture and make it stiffer and more fibrotic. Yes. And then... You mentioned Langevin, some of her work showing that the application of mechanical tension or stretch actually has immunological effects, has effects on tissue repair and healing. Neurological, mm -hmm. I'm not aware from her. I know that from others. Uh, but on, on your topic... On inflammation. Uh, on inflammation, yes. 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 And yes. that's your, your specialty. Yeah. And, and I think that that is uh, really uh, a very fascinating new topic, how, how, how different mechanical stimulations uh, trigger different pro- and anti-inflammatory cytokines in a different temporal sequence. I remember, right, her research was with mice. It was 10 minutes of stretching, maybe a couple times a day. And yeah. she showed a decrease in inflammatory cytokines and an increase in, in resolution markers. Yeah. If I remember that, right. That was with rats. Yeah. It was rats. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's it's fascinating. All, yeah. That is very fascinating. Yeah. Because I mean, uh, what's some of the debates in the yoga community are, are things like, well, oh, we shouldn't be stretching it if it's inflamed, if it's painful. Our, our old model was let's just stretch it better. Mm -hmm. And now there's lots of questioning of that and understanding like, well, actually I can keep things inflamed and maybe the stretching itself might be an injury of mechanism. Uh, sorry, mm -hmm. an injurious mechanism. Yeah. So that's the puzzle that her work presents is what role does stretching and that tension have on so, inflammatory so, resolution? Yeah, so even with mild um, 
mechanical stretch stimulation, yes. you increase immediately one day afterwards the pro-inflammatory cytokines. And uh, if you don't want that, you should not do anything probably. <laughs> the question is, is there any kind of mechanical stimulation that changes the biochemistry that does not start initially with some mild pro-inflammatory response? Yes. So even mild stretching increases yeah. the inflammatory yeah. markers a little bit, and there might be times when we don't want that at all. Yeah. But maybe you want that mm -hmm. in, in a certain manner where you kick off the pro-inflammatory cycle, but in a way in which they trigger as a cascade the subsequent release of anti-inflammatory cytokines. Mm -hmm. And that uh, pro-resolution processes, yeah, yes. And, and she showed that with her rat experiments. Uh, that uh, was then the sustaining, the long-lasting effect was an anti-inflammatory one. But that's your, your topic on inflammation. <laughs> I could go way down that rabbit hole, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's, what would you say about your interest in the insula and interoception? Because you've been talking about those for a long time. That was uh, a topic I stumbled into in 2011 in writing uh, for our textbook in Elsevier Fascia Detentional Network, which is still the leading academic book, uh, general book on fascia, and I volunteered to do something on fascia and the nervous system, and uh, I had known as a psychologist that they are now differentiating between proprioception and interoception in a much more detailed manner than I had learned when I studied psychology at Heidelberg University for five years, 20 years before. So I, I got into interoception as an academic researcher by reading what is out there. And then I got really intrigued in writing that chapter. And I think that chapter also inspired many other people subsequently, because in the body world uh, community at that time, uh, the whole focus was mostly on proprioception, at least in the Feldenkrais community, and on nociception. And interoception, and many body workers still think any kind of internal body sensation is interoception. Then my advice is please do your homework. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Read some of the literature that has been published in the last 10 years about interoception. And make, uh, make the distinction for us, if you would. What, how does interoception different than internal body sensation? In interoception uh, is uh, sensations associated with your body that are related to homeostasis, so mm. to physiological uh, needs. Processes and needs, yeah, yes. We have enough food, hunger, temperature. Is it too warm? Is it too cold? Do you have enough oxygen? So things like, uh, do you have uh, um, uh, too, uh, too many, uh, the acidity in the muscle? For example, if you have sore muscles, that is not proprioception that is uh, too much of certain acidic elements. So it's more physiological. And they showed very clearly that it's not only uh, different nerve endings, all of them are free nerve endings, a lot of them are in the viscera, uh, but they are also uh, pro processed very different in the spinal cord. So uh, all of them go to the lamina one in the spinal cord and they project primarily to the insula in the cortex. And they are not processed in a similar way as normal proprioceptive body sensation is projected via the pyramidal tract to the somatosensory cortex. And, yes. and this is very intriguing. And they also showed that there are different pathologies for example, whiplash and low back pain, they are clearly associated with uh, proprioceptive dysfunction. Uh, of course, not chicken and egg answer, mm -hmm. it would be both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, anxiety and depression uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder often has no 
inhibition of proprioception. They could be the most precise dancer in the universe. However, when you ask him, are you hungry or not? How is your temperature? Which leg do you feel more at home at? They have big difficulties in answering because their insula has a disturbed relationship with their gut feeling, for example. And then so, that also so that was a big discovery, also because it resonated with my non-scientific <laughs> values in life. As somebody who has been doing lots of meditation and somatic practices and continual movement, and, and I can close my eyes and I don't need to do any, take any drugs and, and dive into my body and my guts. <laughs> And so, so, so I think interoception is a big contribution to body workers. And for example, if you work with somebody who has an interoceptive associated dysfunction, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, you would ask very different questions. You would talk slower. You would uh, touch them in a different way and you would do a different yoga class. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about how in English we we conflate feeling in, in all these different senses. Mm -hmm. We have perceptive feeling of sensation. We have the feeling yeah. of emotions. Yeah. And is it is it too simple to say that proprioception is what we feel and interception is how we feel? It's partly right. Um, it's uh, um, proprioception doesn't need to have an affective. Yeah, uh, quality. an emotional quality. It doesn't need yeah. to have an emotional quality. But affective quality. always has a, an affective emotional association. If you change the temperature in the bathtub, you can always say it gets more pleasant or less pleasant. That's it. With, with proprioception, you are often not able to say that. That's it. And so that's an interesting link into pain too. Yeah. Where pain becomes a, you know, a insular phenomenon where we yeah. assign pleasantness or unpleasantness to a sensation. Yeah, and so so pain uh, as a perception is one subcategory, but a very very special one of clearly of interoception. Yes. So I I like that whole field, mm. uh, and uh, uh, recently in the last two three years uh, in interoception, it's a big movement in psychology also. Yes. They, uh, many of them are into. Liza Barrett Feldman's concept of predictive coding, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where the insula uh, often creates or supports certain perception. It doesn't create it, but it, it supports certain perceptions in a selective processing that have nothing to do with how cold your feet are, but how cold you expect them to be. <laughs> Yeah, predictive processing. Yeah, yeah, and that is apparently very, very strong in interoception. Much, of course, everything in life is is uh, creation, and uh, even proprioception is based on your expectations. But much more with interoception. So it means, as a therapist, uh, what you do the, to the peripheral tissue is relatively unimportant, but the expectation you create. Uh, that this is now something very pleasant <laughs> or something very interesting. Uh, so the storytelling you do uh, in interoceptive disorders is much more important than when you work with a dancer who has proprioceptive dysfunctions. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, wrap-up questions. Uh, and by the way, those have been really big inspirations for me in my own inquiries. Those kind of questions you're asking and your mm -hmm. mentions of those, they've really set me off on all of the paths I'm on. You mentioned our common interest in, say, body-oriented psychotherapies. That was background yeah. of mine way back when. But that's the, the questions I'm still asking myself as a practitioner is like, how do I touch that living uh, person, living force, mm -hmm. living entity, living organism that includes all of those uh, feelings, mm -hmm. all of the pleasant, unpleasant, as well as in sensation, all the valuing and experiencing. Mm -hmm. And certainly there's some clues there in the things you've mentioned and some interesting models to try on in the hands-on work. And in, like you said, in creating expectations and in the interactions as well. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm now uh, very strict with our, I'm supervising several doctoral and master thesis, and they want to compare one treatment with another treatment. And often they do a sham treatment uh, where you just lay on hands without doing roughing or something like that. But I'm, I'm very almost militant. If you want to have a control group, you need to make sure that the client experiences it with the same degree of connectedness with the therapist and with the same degree of expectation that this may help them. You really want to measure the mechanism as opposed to the yeah. context, then you need yeah. to have the same context, including expectations, et cetera. Because we know uh, different expectation creates very, very different. Uh, we don't need to do experiments to prove that. But often these master theses are done is uh, beyond the pure placebo effect. We all know the, how strong that is. Yeah. That, uh, that anybody saying it's just placebo hasn't done any reading in the last 10 years. <laughs> uh-huh. Often the placebo is more powerful than the pharmaceutical substance. Yes. Many times more powerful. It's not just a plus 20%, it's plus 800% in many of them. So, uh, but often they do these studies, foam roller studies, etc., roughing studies, to find out if they are is, is there beyond the expectation factors a um, mechanical specific factor of the treatment? Mm-hmm. And then you really need to have the same degree of connectedness. So uh, if you do these studies, you need to give the patient a questionnaire. How do you rate the relationship with the therapist? You know, one to 10. You feel mm-hmm. connected, we are on the same lengths, I feel warmth, etc. They are very well-developed questionnaires. And you can also ask him, what is your intuitive sense that this uh, treatment will help you? Mm-hmm. And when well, you have that equally on both groups and still you get a difference in the effect, then that is more meaningful. Then it points toward the mechanism because both of those things, you mentioned the expectation and the connection with the therapist have been shown. We know them to be really significant predictors of outcome. They have quite a bit, they have a strong effect in and of themselves. You're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what would you say, Robert, some ways that your work over the years is commonly misunderstood because you really have inspired a lot of people to dive into the world of fascia and uh, bodies, uh, place in our in our work so how does your work get misunderstood would you say mm, i don't like the question so much <laughs> uh, because i'm often surrounded by people who have that as a life script i have been misunderstood you know the, the overlooked hero <laughs> and they die with it and i have had a very lucky relationship in the last few years in which i realize if you become a better networker people support you and that has been more of my life story. Of course, they support you for the wrong reasons. <laughs> but uh, if, if you want to be uh, an unsung hero, I told you 20 years and nobody listened to me. That is, of course, something you can go to grave with and say, I'm, I'm one of the biggest uh, overlooked heroes in the history. But uh, what we found out, and I was uh, very positively surprised in doing that, and it became one of our slogans, maybe towards the end of this interview, I can get this slogan off, that we developed as our small fashion research group at Ulm University, we developed the slogan for us, if you want to understand fascia as a networking organ, it works very well if you work on your own personality, on your own communication structure to become a good networker yourself more than in other areas of medical science. In science, often competition is is the name of the game. You don't share your insights until the right moment because other people could steal them. And protection of mental property is very important. And I'm doing the opposite in the last five or 10 years. I I display all my values, my jewels, and people can steal them, but many of them give me something back. And, and that, I, I can highly recommend that if you want to understand fascia, if you want to become a good therapist, first of all, pretend to be more humble than maybe sometimes you feel. 
that, that you don't say, I have the answer and everybody else is in the asshole. You say, I have a tiny contribution to make. What do you think? What can I learn from you? <laughs> and people appreciate that. And, the, uh, and uh, so uh, it, it means you, you also expose from whom you have learned and you describe what you discover as a hypothesis. It could be that way and further research is needed. And that works very well. And we have been doing that in the last years. And I'm, I, I would answer your question the other way, uh, that uh, where have I misunderstood things in the past? <laughs> and uh, where am I learning to be a better networker in the present? That's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for the reframe. Mm, yeah. Yes. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> And you're doing that very well, Till. Also, you're doing that, that uh, podcast with me. That's a very nice learning trick. I will copy that. Okay. Well, I'm learning as we go. And, and I, may, I mean it as a, that you've been a mentor in this way, including the networking, because you, you, that's one of your gifts is both bringing people together, but getting us to think beyond the polarities that we yeah. can inadvertently set up. And there is so much cultural force in this country for sure, but I know elsewhere in the world too, around polarizations. Mm. And it's so easy to slip into those ways of thinking and comparing and juxtaposing. But your answer just now, uh, just is another example of how thinking beyond that, thinking, okay, so let's share. Let's, mm -hmm. uh, let's let people think what they want. Let's pe let people use what we do and, uh, and, the hum and the humility, the place to come back to that ends up interconnecting us all even more and it makes us all richer. If our therapist, it's sometimes uh, not so easy to stay humble because mm. the client uh, often favors full of themselves evangelistic therapists who say my method works very simple and it always works and I know what's wrong with you and I'm sure I can fix it in three sessions. And, and if you say, honestly, I don't know how your pain is created. I don't right. know how my therapy works. Yes. I have been helpful in 78% of the cases. <laughs> and I don't know why I couldn't help in the rest of them. The client may not respect you as much in the beginning. Well, I'd say the same forces are true as a teacher, as an educator. Yeah. Too. The market uh, doesn't. Well, the market encourages us to make big claims yeah. and people respond to certainty and to yeah. dramatic yeah. claims and people don't get as excited when the answer is, well, it's really actually pretty complicated Yeah, and that we're still learning, we're understanding, but that's, that's the honest answer and it actually opens up even more possibilities. Yeah, but 10 years later, it looks the opposite. Mm. Yeah, your colleagues uh, respect you more if you have been more humble in your claims. What, do you, what questions do you think we should be asking as manual therapists? We're asking, is it tissue? Is it nervous system? Yeah. Should I make claims? Should I not make claims? What mechanisms? What do you think we should be asking? My question with a client is, what factors am I not yet seeing? Hmm. You know, that are right in front of my nose. And <laughs> I'm ignoring them. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's in the relationship between the two of us. Maybe it's the way how the client smells. Maybe it's uh, something he just told me and I ignored it. Uh, so for me, that is, uh, is there anything outside of my main focus that may be a very important key? And I think that's a great question. And you will never be bored when you touch or uh, meet a client. You're talking about an open awareness and, yeah. will, and uh, yeah. a willingness to be surprised or yeah. uh, to perceive things that we weren't expecting as well. Peter Marchio had that very, very often. Mm. I learned that a lot from him. Mm. So uh, it, it comes back to, we had that also in at the recent conference in in Netherlands last, uh, uh, just a few days ago, where you want to go back to Hippocrates. He was a very influential healer in old Greece, but he was a very modest man. And uh, he advised his doctors that he trained 
to rather stay with uncertainty than with false certainty. And I think that is a very nice attitude that we should also have to that uh, as a healer, you are more modest and you try to serve the client in his self-healing the best you can. So modesty is the way to uh, balance our uncertainty with our need to take action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, many of our colleagues, they say, I don't need to understand the mechanism. As long as it works, that's all that matters. What do you think? I think that's not completely true. Hmm. Uh, because if you understand more correctly, you can use it very different. And there are many examples. Uh, so the example I used in the Facebook disc uh, discussion is the story of one of the most successful substances in pharmacological medicine, the story of aspirin. Already Hippocrates used not aspirin, but willow tree extract that is basically similar, but not as precise. It's also an anti-inflammatory cocktail. And they used willow tree extract when they created the aspirin in the first years. And when they created aspirin, they knew it was anti-inflammatory, but they couldn't explain why they had the wrong explanation they thought it works via the central nervous system and they treated successfully for 100 years with the wrong explanation but then they discovered that it is a prostaglandin inhibitor and it works on the peripheral tissue and that the pathway is a very complex pathway but you can draw it with six arrows and names, arachidonic acid and, and prostaglandins, etc. And there was a Nobel Prize even for, for the complex dynamics that they very detailed unraveled. And with that unraveling, they were able to develop better drugs with less side effects and even now use aspirin in cases that you wouldn't have used it before because you understand it better. So I would do the same thing. Uh, hopefully, I, we will have it also with myofascial therapies. If we know to what degree is the brain interacting with shearing motions or with certain cytokine expressions in the ground substance, and it may be more than five or six arrows, similar like the prostaglandin in inhibition, then we may develop different myofascial therapies for different purposes. And we may use myofascial therapies in cases where we haven't used it before. But first, we need to do our homework and understand more correctly. If we work with the old Greek model, that it's the four-body humors and, and uh, that willow tree extract gets it more into one direction, maybe we offers are still in a, in a Hippocrates state. Or maybe we are 100 years back where they thought it's the central nervous system only. But maybe in a few decades, whether there is a Nobel Prize or not involved, we will have the more exact pathway. And not only as a maybe, but something that you can prove and falsify. And it's pretty clear how aspirin works now. Nobody questions that anymore. So maybe we will have something similar with myofascial release. Maybe over time we'll understand the mechanisms even better. We'll find yeah. out things we assumed may or may not be true, but that better understanding will allow us to use it even more precisely, yeah. more yeah. flexibly. Yeah. And then you may sometimes just touch and use a gentle voice and tell the client, close your eyes and feel what's happening inside. And in other times you may not need to do that. You, they can uh, talk on the phone with their wife while, while you do a roughing treatment on them. I hope I won't be doing that. But for some conditions, that may be sufficient. We could go on for hours. We could. Anything else you want to make sure that we get? <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to make sure we include? We have touched many subjects. We've touched many things. It's fantastic, Robert. Really, yeah. really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. And again, it's as always, I've learned things and I... Uh, recognize 
in what you're saying, some of the influences that have been so important to me and some of the, the possibilities that you're opening up into mm. further learning as well, you know, both in terms of knowledge, but also in terms of the outlook and the attitude that you bring to the work. Mm. So thanks for taking this time. Thank you, Tova. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Stop by our site for the show notes, full transcripts, references, and extras. That's thethinkingpractitioner.com or my site, advanced-trainings.com or Whitney's site. Whitney will be back next episode. Whitney's is academyofclinicalmassage.com. If you have questions, topic requests, uh, or suggestions for us, email us. We'd love to get your emails at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. Please rate us wherever you listen to us. Rate or review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And tell a friend and be sure to tune in next time. <laughs>